In The Legend of Zelda, Link isn't just an intrepid adventurer and master swordsman, he's also an accomplished multi-instrumentalist. In addition to his memorable performances on the ocarina and the harp, he's also played bells, a variety of flutes, and even the guitar. Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about songs that make the sun rise, songs that make the winds change, and of course, songs that make your horse come a-running. Strong Songs is a listener-supported show, which means that I am only able to make it because of each and every person out there who chips in to help me do so. If you like this show, seriously, if you like this show and you want me to keep making it, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. On this episode, we're returning to the land of Hyrule for another musical adventure, this time going deep on the latest Zelda game, which wound up having such great music that I had to make a whole episode about it. There's a lot to get into and no time to waste, so build a huge bridge, drop it across the chasm, and let's do this thing. Ever since I made that episode last year about the music of The Legend of Zelda, the series and its music haven't been far from my mind. That was almost entirely because of the looming release of Tears of the Kingdom, a direct sequel to Breath of the Wild that came out this year in 2023, back in May. It was a game that wound up being every bit the phenomenon its predecessor was, and then some. Earlier this year, I guested on a two-part episode of the fantastic podcast 20,000 Hertz, all about the sound and music of the Zelda series. Longtime listeners will remember that I had that show's host, Dallas Taylor, as a guest on Strong Songs a while back. 20,000 Hertz is a great podcast, and those two episodes are really, really cool. I'll link to them in the show notes. You should go check them out. If you like Strong Songs, you should be listening to 20,000 Hertz anyways. On those episodes, we talked a bit about Tears of the Kingdom, but we didn't get into it too deeply. And the more I played the game, the more I found I had to say about it, and specifically about the way the game uses music. So I decided that I would make this episode a full length deep analysis of the music of Tears of the Kingdom. So that's what we're going to do. Consider this the third and, at least for a while, final episode of Strong Songs that I will make about Zelda music. And if you haven't listened to my first full-length Zelda episode, I recommend listening to that as well as the bonus episode that I just dropped in the main feed. And as far as spoilers go, the first 40 minutes of this episode talks about general stuff that happens in the game, but no major story spoilers. Then I'm going to give a warning at 40 minutes and we'll talk about some real big story spoilers. So just something to keep in mind. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into it, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Breath of the Wild was, in many ways, a culmination of the legend of Zelda. That's true for the game, and that's also true for the music. As I discussed in my first episode about Zelda music, Breath of the Wild tied together loads of previous Zelda melodies, like how they took the Dragon Roost Island music from The Wind Waker... and repurposed it into the Rito Village music for Breath of the Wild... Or how they took Epona's theme, the theme for the horse from Ocarina of Time, 
and had the accordion playing Birdman Koss superimpose that melody over the stable theme from Breath of the Wild. Other well-known Zelda melodies turned up as well. There were those piano renditions of the item get and secret unlocked jingles, a lush reprisal of the fairy fountain theme, and of course the now famous introduction of that classic Legend of Zelda theme played this time by a solo cello creeping in as Link rides his horse across a misty moonlight meadow. felt like a homecoming to me, like seeing a group of composers take advantage of a three-decade backlog of melodies and jingles, using that to build a complex, comprehensive musical world. So with that accomplished, what was left for them to do in the sequel? And the short answer is, the same thing, just way more. Man, where to begin with Tears of the Kingdom? I've described this game as a classic more sequel. It takes what was great about Breath of the Wild and it gives players even more of it. It still kind of blows me away that the game's creators managed to top themselves in so many ways given how great Breath of the Wild already was, but that's exactly what they did. And they also added saxophone. In terms of systems, design, pacing, puzzles, story, and absolutely music, Tears of the Kingdom takes Breath of the Wild as a baseline and expands on it in surprising, delightful ways. It's an oversimplification to say it's better than Breath of the Wild because it couldn't exist without Breath of the Wild, but it does go beyond the 2017 game in just about every way possible. The game's composers, a quartet consisting of Manaka Kataoka, Maasa Miyoshi, Masato Ohashi, and Tsukasa Usui, have managed something extraordinary with this score. Tears of the Kingdom is a musical masterpiece, a soundtrack that goes so hard in so many new directions that I really can't believe they pulled it off. So there is a lot to talk about here, a lot of music to get into. I'm very excited for that. Before we do, a quick note about those four composers that I just credited. Of course, many of the original Zelda themes were composed by the great Koji Kondo, a titan of modern music to whom I have dedicated quite a bit of time on Strong Songs. But I do want to recognize the four composers who wrote the original music for this game, and in particular to call out the first two composers that I cited, Manaka Kataoka and Maasa Miyoshi. 
Bungie, both of whom are women. There are far too few women composing music for video games these days, particularly for huge series like The Legend of Zelda, and I think it's so cool that half of the composition team for this game were women. So shout out to them. Kataoka-san has been working at Nintendo for quite a while. She wrote music for Animal Crossing before working on Breath of the Wild, and then, of course, working on Tears of the Kingdom. And Miyoshi-san joined more recently in 2015, and Tears of the Kingdom is by far the biggest game that she's worked on at Nintendo. So huge respect to them, as well as Masato Hoshi and Tsukasa Usui. I know my Japanese pronunciation isn't as strong as it could be, but I really just want to underline that all of the music that I'm going to be talking about in this episode was written by actual human beings and not just by Nintendo. And that as vital a role as Koji Kondo has played in Nintendo's musical legacy, that legacy is being expanded upon and reimagined by so many more incredible contemporary composers at Nintendo today. And so without further ado, let's get into it and let's start where else but with the main theme for Tears of the Kingdom, a five-note motif that plays an outsized role over the course of the game. I really like that theme. It's grown on me over time and with repetition, but I appreciate what it represents as well as just how cool it sounds as a piece of music. So it's five notes. Here we're in the key of F minor, though it turns up in a lot of different keys over the course of the game. In F minor, it starts on a G, which is the second note of F minor. It starts on a G, then it goes to E flat, the flat seven, then to F, which is the one, and then to C, the fifth, two times. So it goes down and then it leaps up which actually connects it directionally to Koji Kondo's original Zelda theme which also first goes down and then climbs up. The motif also just sort of sounds like the game, if that makes any sense. Tears of the Kingdom is fundamentally a game about soaring through the sky, but it's also a game about exploring the deepest depths. In fact, the story kicks off with Zelda and Link plumbing too deep into the depths below Hyrule Castle, after which huge swaths of the kingdom lift off from the ground and soar into the sky. And you can actually hear that in this theme, or at least I hear it. It sounds like someone bending his knees and bracing him himself and then leaping into the sky and with that repeated sea at the end staying airborne perhaps with some kind of a paraglider or something Of course, that five-note motif doesn't exist in a vacuum. It appears in a variety of harmonic settings throughout the game, and it takes on different vibes depending on how it's used. Here in the main theme, it's this propulsive, heroic vibe that's due partly to the performance, this grand orchestra moving as one, and it's partly due to the harmony underneath the melody. So like I said, we're in F minor, but we don't actually start on an F minor chord. The motif plays, and upon hitting the F before jumping up to the C, we hit the first chord, which is a D flat major 7 chord. The F and the C are squarely inside of that chord. They're both chord tones. The F is the major 3rd, and the C is the major 7th. So that repeating note is a major 7th. That's a very nice tone to start out with, and it emphasizes that rich major 7th sound right at the start. 
from there, the chord climbs a step to E flat major. The motif changes the note by dropping a half step lower to a D natural on the second note, and then it repeats that F jumping up to C as the chord moves up yet another step to F minor. Before climbing even higher to the four chord of B flat major. So for all the orchestral pomp of the performance, this is a pretty rock and roll chord progression, one that you've heard in a ton of songs and even a few that I've talked about on Strong Songs. It's flat six major to flat seven major to one to four. Hell yeah. From there, the melody keeps on climbing. The chord progression repeats. It goes back to that D flat and then up to an E flat, which sets up the resolution to F minor for the solo that kicks off the next section. There's a constant sense of ascension throughout this progression since even when the chords repeat toward the end, the melody doesn't repeat. It keeps climbing higher and higher, covering the space of almost two octaves in just a few bars. Here it is all together. Try to keep that all in your mind as you listen to it. that's a powerful and very complete rendition of the theme, but something that Tears of the Kingdom does well is play with the idea of a recurring motif or leitmotif, which is a widely used musical device that attaches certain melodies to certain characters, places, and events. We've talked about leitmotif plenty of times on Strong Songs. That motif, or just as commonly the first four notes without that repeated note up top, that's the Tears of the Kingdom motif, and it turns up everywhere. And the thing is, you've actually heard it before while playing Breath of the Wild, even if you didn't realize it. Now, this is a pretty out there Easter egg, even by Zelda standards. And remember, this is a series that once built a game's entire primary motif off of a reversed version of Zelda's lullaby. But I want to point it out to you all, even though I don't fully know what to make of it. And I should say, the person who pointed this out to me was Casey Emerling, who wrote those 20,000 Hertz Zelda episodes that I guessed it on. So shout out to Casey. Okay, Nintendo games are full of music. Nintendo consoles are full of music. That music manifests in obvious ways, like background music while playing a game or during cutscenes. It also manifests in more subtle, pervasive ways. The menus in Nintendo games, and even in Nintendo consoles are often extremely musical places to be. They're full of lovely tones, jingles, and chords that accompany each button press, menu selection, and item deletion. And as you run around in either Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom, you'll hear a lot of the same user interface sounds, for lack of a better way of describing them. For example, when you pick up an item off the ground, you'll hear this sound. You hear the same sound in Breath of the Wild and in Tears of the Kingdom, and you pick up so many items in both games that your brain will quickly kind of file it away to the point that you barely even notice it. But I want you to listen to it again more closely and try to pick out the individual notes that it contains. 
Now that's still happening pretty fast, so let's slow it way down, and this is going to drop each individual note in that jingle an octave, and it's also going to leave a lot more space in between them so that you can pick them out more easily. Here we go. Can you hear it? Now take those same notes and play them with a different rhythm, and what do you get? So yeah, I have no idea what to make of that. It's likely just some bit of cleverness on the part of the composers and sound designers working on the game, but I got a kick out of it when Casey asked me about it, and I couldn't help but share it with you all. And I mean, Hyrule Castle floating into the air above the highest mountains in the land. It's kind of the ultimate item pickup when you think about it. It's a great theme and one that turns up throughout the game, and this performance is bolstered by two solo instruments that I've come to think of as the signature instruments of Tears of the Kingdom. The first you're hearing right now, the Urhu, a two-stringed Chinese fiddle with a storied history and an instantly recognizable sound. And the second signature instrument is one that I've already mentioned, an instrument close to my heart and one I never expected to hear in a Zelda game. The saxophone. There are other solo instruments featured on the Tears of the Kingdom soundtrack, but the Urhu and the saxophone are the two that made the strongest impression on me. Let's start with the Urhu. It's an instrument you've almost certainly heard before, even if you didn't know what it was called. It's a two-stringed bowed instrument with a small resonance box that's held vertically like a cello, and it's played with a light, swooping style that, at least here in America, is so distinctive that it's often used in films and TV as a sort of shorthand for the sound of China. This is Aaron Lee demonstrating the instrument, which indeed has strong historical roots in China going back hundreds of years, though it finds modern applications in all sorts of places, including modern Zelda games. In the world of Zelda, the Urhu is an instrument of the dragons. In Breath of the Wild, it would make a brief but memorable appearance on the soundtrack every time you happened upon one of the majestic elemental dragons who circle the skies above Hyrule. If you've played this game, hearing this right now, you're seeing what I'm seeing. This beautiful, slow-moving dragon arcing across the sky. With just that limited use, Breath of the Wild established the Urhu as the instrument of the dragons, and because dragons play such a bigger narrative role in Tears of the Kingdom, like the tears in the title are dragon's tears, it makes sense that the instrument would feature more prominently in the score for the new game. And it does, kicking off the main theme with this looping, acrobatic melody that evokes a goddess of the sky diving from the clouds before cresting the horizon. Shout out to that piccolo player, too. They're getting it done. Which brings us to the second signature instrument, the saxophone, which is used so creatively and so effectively throughout this game that I almost can't believe it. 
Specifically, Tears of the Kingdom features an alto saxophone as its signature solo saxophone, though it does also feature a beautiful saxophone ensemble that features tenor and maybe in a couple of places soprano saxophone as well, though certainly tenor. I honestly was not expecting the degree of saxiness that this game delivers. As a saxophonist myself, I was really excited going in since I had been primed by this incredible moment in the game's big cinematic trailer, which came out just a little bit before the game. In that moment, toward the end of the trailer, seemingly out of nowhere, this alto saxophone just steps in and goes nuts and drives the intensity up to 9,000. It just blows the doors off the place. Get ready. Link. It's honestly not even a style of sax playing that appears in the game itself. It's full-on laser beam pop sax, lip curled out, voice engaged, rocking all the way up into the Altissimo register like someone on stage at Eurovision. I took a crack at learning that saxophone part myself, and man, it is no joke, especially the stuff at the end. (laughs) Man, as more of a tenor player, alto sax altissimo register is such a pain. You need lips of leather to play up there all the time. So I wouldn't dare to hope that the final game would have featured strident pop sax playing like that trailer. Honestly, it wouldn't even really fit with the vibe of Legend of Zelda if that kind of saxophone turned up in the game. And it doesn't. But what they wound up doing is actually pretty different and really lovely. It starts right from the title sequence for the game, which itself is a cool evolution of the title sequence from Breath of the Wild. If you'll remember, Breath of the Wild had a very memorable title sequence where the title of the game comes up on the screen set over a sweeping panorama of Hyrule as viewed from atop the Great Plateau. It's fairly understated, musically speaking, particularly when compared with Tears of the Kingdom, the title sequence of which begins similarly and then ups the ante pretty quickly. And it does so with a lovely and familiar sound. Right out of the gate, a classical-style alto saxophone introduces the Tears of the Kingdom motif for the very first time. A moment of grace suspended in the air before gravity kicks in. If there was any question or worry going into Tears of the Kingdom that the game would be content to simply reuse the music of Breath of the Wild without developing it at all, I hope that this title card sequence put those to rest. For me at least, I got chills listening to this breathless orchestral build delivered as Link plummets headlong from thousands of feet above the earth. And in the back of my mind, a thought, if they opened with the saxophone, there must be so much more of it in the rest of the game. 
Okay, I'm guessing I'm probably one of the only ones who was that fixated on the saxophones. I'm guessing the rest of you weren't quite as distracted by that specific element of the game, but I really was. And I was so pleasantly surprised by the game's opening sequence and opening really couple of hours. It takes place in the Sky Islands during a tutorial section that I know a lot of people don't like, and it probably does take a little bit too long for the game to cut loose and let you start exploring freely, but I mean... There's so much saxophone in the Sky Islands. There's saxophone everywhere. As you accumulate new powers and get a feel for how the game plays, the musical backdrop is this, this gorgeous saxophone ensemble, a series of suspended chords drifting lazily over a bed of thick reverb, alto and tenor saxophones creating this lost, gently haunted atmosphere that perfectly evokes the ghosts of these ruined temples in the sky. At this point, I was so intrigued and delighted because it was immediately clear to me that the game's composers understood the saxophone on a much deeper level, and they knew just how timbrely versatile an instrument it is. For a lot of people with, let's say, more limited imaginations or maybe just more limited experience with the saxophone, they hear the word saxophone and, well, they think of this. And I mean, fair enough, the Careless Whisper sax solo is great. I actually did a whole segment about it on a Q&A episode a little while back. But as fun and memorable as that style of sax playing is, there's so much more to the saxophone than just that laser tone pop sax sound that's featured in so many 80s hits, as well as so dramatically in that trailer for Tears of the Kingdom. The saxophone's defining characteristic is this rich, voice-like tone that when softened, and in particular when layered on top of other saxophones, can create such gorgeous harmonic soundscapes. Let me show you a little bit of how that works. Here are two of the opening chords from the Sky Island music as you hear them in the game. This first one, a sort of F minor 9 over A flat, which sounds like A flat major 7. Really lovely sound. And then... Many of the same notes on top with a B-flat in the bottom, which creates this beautiful B-flat sus sound with a suspended fourth on top. It's a lovely chord, and it would sound nice on the piano. In Breath of the Wild, it probably would have been played on the piano, since the piano played such a strong role in that game's musical identity. But in Tears of the Kingdom, it's time for something new. The composers have leaned into the strength of the saxophone ensemble, so allow me to do the same thing. I'm going to build each of those first two chords, and I'll do a slightly more limited version than on the soundtrack, since I think there are a couple of other things going on there, maybe a couple more instruments or even a synth or something like that. But let's keep it simple. I'm just going to use three and then four saxophones to build those two chords. I'm going to crank up the reverb, and we will start with the tenor sax on the bottom. On top of that, there's the second alto sax in the middle. And the first alto sax on top. Put them together, and what do we get?
Let's build the second chord the same way, the tenor on the bottom much lower down on the tenor's low C. And then a third alto sax part slightly higher up. The second alto playing the same part as before. And the first alto with the same notes as well. Put them together and you get a very different sound. The saxophone, am I right? It's a far cry from Careless Whisper, but that's the magic of this instrument, and it's why I'll always love it. It can do so many different things, and in the hands of the right players and the right composers, the saxophone can become magic. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is a sort of a classical style of saxophone playing, and that's true, though classical, of course, is a word with a lot of different meanings. As a trained jazz saxophonist, we actually used to call this legit sax playing, which has its own weird set of implications. But basically, this is the style of sax playing, the style of tone, and most importantly, articulation that you'll hear more in an orchestra or a wind ensemble as opposed to a rock band or a jazz band. And that's borne out by my favorite sax cue, maybe my favorite musical cue of the entire game, the Ghibli-esque fanfare that plays whenever Link launches himself from a new Skyview Tower and scans a new region into his map. It's so good. I got sad once I'd unlocked all of the Skyview Towers and it meant that I couldn't listen to that music anymore or watch that cutscene. It's this beautiful variation of the Tears of the Kingdom motif. It's built out of those same notes if you're listening closely, though they add one note to that motif and it really changes it and makes it into a kind of grander, more beautiful melody. And it's played enchantingly by a solo alto saxophone. And then comes a classic modulation as the whole thing moves up a half step, climbing higher, higher, and higher, ending so high that it evaporates into the atmosphere. What I found stylistically remarkable about that as I recorded my own version is how little articulation there is. Articulation for a wind instrument like the saxophone is when your tongue hits the reed or otherwise stops your airflow. It's what gives your sound its rhythm and it gives it so much of its personality. People tend to focus on tone and intonation when trying to improve their sound and style on a wind instrument, but articulation is a huge part of a person's sound. Most modern saxophonists, especially jazz players, have really personal articulation and they use articulation to emphasize the rhythms of whatever it is they're playing. That's all tongue, that's all articulation, and that's where the groove lies and jazz players are all about groove, which means they're all about articulation. But 
but that would be all wrong here. To cop the sound of the player on the Tears of the Kingdom soundtrack, I had to barely articulate at all. I started most notes with my breath, which is called a breath attack, and it gives a much softer sound. If I walked into a studio and I saw that music on the page, as a more jazz-focused player, I would probably play it with a little more articulation. Articulation is just one more tool in a saxophonist's toolkit, and it's one more way that the instrumentalists and composers behind Tears of the Kingdom took advantage of the many tonal options offered by the instrument. And I mean, it's hard to argue with the results. As anyone who has played the game knows, there's so much music in this game. There are whole stylistic continents that I am not going to have time to visit on this episode, like the synthy atmospherics of the Zonai Shrines. Which layer and increase in complexity as you work your way through a series of puzzles. Or in total contrast to that, the Saturday morning cartoon Shamison Shredding of Master Koga's boss theme, one of my favorite pieces of music in the game. Like, it is just wild that a game that has space for all that beautiful atmospheric stuff also has space for this. There really is music hiding everywhere in Tears of the Kingdom, including within Link himself. Link, of course, is a musician. He's no stranger to musical performance. In many previous Zelda games, he has been given a musical instrument of some sort to play, but his musical side expresses itself more subtly in Tears of the Kingdom. Whenever he cooks, he hums a little tune, and each tune that he hums is a piece of music from a previous Zelda game. Some of them are easy to identify, like the main Zelda theme. or Epona's theme from Ocarina of Time. Or Saria's song, also from Ocarina of Time. Some of them are a little bit harder to identify and took me a minute to figure out, like the Hyrule Field music from Ocarina of Time. Or, in probably the deepest cut, the Ballad of the Windfish from Link's Awakening. Those are all examples of diegetic music within Tears of the Kingdom, which is to say they're all examples of music that is actually being performed within the world as opposed to on the soundtrack. And I love what that suggests, that this music somehow is real to Link. He's this adventurer almost out of time. He's been through so many different adventures in so many different lifetimes. 
In some ways, he's an immortal archetypal hero, and here he is cooking some food and absentmindedly humming music from adventures that he only half remembers with his waking mind. That's not the only diegetic music in Tears of the Kingdom, of course. Where Breath of the Wild had Kaas and his accordion, Tears of the Kingdom introduces an in-game ensemble called the Stable Trotters, a quartet of musicians who, along with their director, perform at Hyrule's stables. Of course, they're not performing at the beginning of the game. You have to reunite the group, and you have to do it one musician at a time. The Stable Trotters quest is one of my favorite side quests in Tears of the Kingdom, unsurprisingly, because you see the great fairies, who are generally nice ladies and also have the power to upgrade Link's armor. They've all locked themselves away in their magic pods, and they refuse to come out without hearing the sound of their favorite instrument. So Link must find each of the four missing members of the Stable Trotters and reunite the band to perform for the fairies and coax them back into the world. As with so many Zelda things, the joy is in the details. Coaxing them back into the world involves carting however many musicians you've currently found up to the fairy's fountain for a performance, which means that you get to hear any of a number of different ensemble configurations performing a piece together each time you get a new fairy to come out. For me, the first member of the band that I found was the violinist who coaxed her fairy out with this beautiful solo piece. That really is the magic of Nintendo right there, that in the middle of their big action RPG, one of the best-selling games they've ever made, they can pause and spotlight this incredible solo instrumental performance just like that. The Stable Trotters also have a piper in the band. He plays a lovely rendition of that same piece. There's also an F-horn player, and if you find the F-horn player as I did after the violinist, they could perform the piece together as a duet. There's a similar side quest to this in Super Mario Odyssey. When you're in New Donk City, you assemble a jazz band, and they do a similar trick where the ensemble and the arrangement grow more elaborate as you add each part. And it's a really cool thing because it kind of shows you how the arrangement works because you hear it over and over again with each new instrument, which I think is really cool, especially because so many kids play these games and it gives them a sense of how an ensemble can work and how a piece of music can transform as you add new instrumentalists to an arrangement. The fourth member of the band is a percussionist who plays a hand drum. If you find him third, you'll hear the horn, the violin, and the drum performing as a trio. Find all four members and you'll get a special treat. First, all four of them will play a fully realized arrangement of the piece. And then, because you've gotten so used to hearing the piece, they'll surprise you by doing something new. First, they quote the original Legend of Zelda theme... 
then they'll do something a little extra. There's a new instrument you can hear. It's over on the right if you listen closely. See, Kaas, the accordionist, that Rito, the big bird who played the accordion in Breath of the Wild, he's conspicuously absent from Tears of the Kingdom, which is too bad because he was a great character and a very good accordion player. But for the grand finale of the Stable Trotters piece, he appears in spirit at least. The sound of an unseen accordionist and a guitarist join the group to bring it home. From that point onward, whenever you visit a stable, you'll hear the stable trotters playing along with that familiar stable theme, similar to how Koss would play along with it in Breath of the Wild, weaving once again Epona's horsey theme in with the stable music, as well as a few more notes of their own. It's a great example of the sorts of subtle musical storytelling that Tears of the Kingdom does so well. Of course, there are plenty of other, much more dramatic examples of Tears of the Kingdom storytelling, and that's what I want to talk about last, because it's tied to the thing that Tears of the Kingdom most dramatically elaborates upon when compared with Breath of the Wild, and that's the main narrative. And I should say, this is where we're going to get into some real story spoilers, so just a heads up. I was so impressed and genuinely moved by Tears of the Kingdom's story, which I didn't really see coming. I liked Breath of the Wild's narrative well enough, but for For me, the narrative of that game was the story of me climbing to the top of a hill, finding something interesting, looking across the horizon, seeing a new hill, and setting out to climb that one. In contrast, for me, Tears of the Kingdom's main narrative is its actual main narrative, the story of the game, this bittersweet tale of war, time, and sacrifice that's written and performed unusually well, but time and again, the music was the thing that really made that story land. Been sleeping all this time. But when I felt something like a warm, loving embrace, I woke up. The finale of this game is really great, we'll get to it, but actually the musical narrative storytelling of Tears of the Kingdom started pretty early for me. Once I had finished the tutorials and landed on solid ground in the Kingdom of Hyrule, I headed to the northwest part of the map, which I think a lot of people probably do first, since the game strongly suggests that you go there, and in the northwest part of the map, as you know if you played Breath of the Wild, well that's where the Rito Village is. And if you'll recall, the Rito Village theme from Breath of the Wild was one of my favorite pieces of music in the game, this lush rendition of Wind Waker's Dragon Roost Island theme. But upon reaching the village in Tears of the Kingdom, I found it totally changed, all but abandoned, covered in snow. And the music, that music that I loved so much, was gone. 
In its place, glassy synths, percussive drones, and a mere echo of a melody from a warmer, safer time. It was chilling, almost literally, and it really gave me motivation to go and save this place that I'd really come to love. It was such a smart use of music, and one that really only a game like this could pull off. Because I was visiting a town that I knew from the first game, it hit so much harder when the music that I knew was gone, buried in the snow right alongside the village. Needless to say, that gave me extra motivation to fly into the heavens and defeat the great Kolgara and save the city. This is a very cool boss fight, and a big part of what makes it so cool is this fantastic music that's playing during the fight. It's this almost Celtic dance number, solo penny whistle flitting above the violins. Wind whipping through the air, spiraling up and around before plunging down again. The music changes with each phase of the fight, and as you prepare to enter the final stage, the final showdown, the music becomes distinctly heroic. And as that solo piper soars toward a crescendo, the music kicks to a new level with a callback to a familiar theme. (laughs) How good is that? As the fight reaches its climax, there's that Rito Village theme, redone like something by Ennio Morricone, reminding Link what he's fighting for and who it is he's trying to save. With that music motivating me, of course I vanquished the creature, and afterward I returned to the village and found it unfrozen with that familiar theme music welcoming me home. Time and again, this game's composers use melody and leitmotif in that way, using character themes to underscore dramatic moments and raise the emotional stakes. In addition to the Tears of the Kingdom motif, which I've already talked about, there are three other motifs that play a crucial role in the story. There's the main theme, the main Legend of Zelda theme, which I've actually come to think of as Link's theme, since it's more associated with him. Then there's Zelda's lullaby, which I've come to think of just as Zelda's theme. And there's one more theme from a very different Zelda game that was such a wonderful surprise when I heard it. I'll talk about that last theme more in just a minute. There are, of course, some other themes that turn up in the game as well. Ganondorf has his own theme, for example, although I'm not really going to talk about that here. 
So of those four themes, Zelda's theme is the most important one because for the first time in a while, Zelda really is the most important character in Tears of the Kingdom. It's been said before, but this game is the first one in quite a while that really feels like the Legend of Zelda and not the Legend of Link with Zelda helping out and doing some cool stuff in the background. Zelda's story is Tears of the Kingdom's story. It's what makes the story so emotionally rich as she becomes trapped a thousand years in the past, comes up against the great evil of Ganondorf, and knowing that he'll return in her present makes a grand sacrifice, transforming into a mindless dragon to roam the skies, lost for centuries with the faint hope that Link will find her in the present day, retrieve the Master's Sword, and stop Ganondorf for a second time. I know why I am here. Something only I can do. We will finally stop him. So each of those motifs turns up countless times. You could hear Zelda's theme playing right there in that cutscene, and you'll hear Zelda's theme a lot throughout the story. I would be here all day if I just pointed out each instance of one of those motifs turning up. But there are a few instances that I particularly like. For starters, when Link and Zelda discover and awaken Ganondorf right at the beginning of the game, Zelda falls into the depths and Link is unable to catch her. This is a crucial moment for the whole story. It's really the moment that sets the whole thing in motion. He tries, he leaps to save her as he has in the past, but his wounded arm just misses the catch. And in that moment, we get the most delicate rendition of the Tears of the Kingdom theme. And just like that, she's gone. But Hope isn't gone with her. As a mysterious magical arm catches Link and saves him from falling himself, we get another important sound. A hand clap. This is a crucial moment, or really a crucial double moment. It's a moment that'll echo through the entire game, with Link spending the next hundred or so hours trying to find his way back to Zelda to finally catch her hand. The hand clap, as a musical element, is a very human, distinctive, percussive device, and this game's composers don't use it lightly. It doesn't turn up all over the place, it's only used in very specific circumstances. The story of Tears of the Kingdom is the story of hands connecting, as Link teams up with each of the sages throughout the story he clasps their hand usually the camera pulls in on their hands connecting and he merges their powers into rings that he wears on his fingers the soundtrack is not littered with hand clap sound effects it saves that sound for those crucial moments of connection here link your hand here it comes Sidon, the sage of water, swear that I will fight by your side. It's all set up by that moment at the beginning of the game when that mysterious arm made contact after Link could not. 
A short time later, safely on the Sky Islands, Link makes contact of a sort with Zelda, warping the broken Master Sword back in time to her, not knowing that this is what will make her decide to lose herself and transform into a dragon. And immediately after that happens, Zelda herself, in dragon form, crests out of the clouds right in front of Link, and as she does so, the Urhu returns to play a mournful rendition of its part from the main theme. It's a moment of compressed time that makes a different kind of sense once you know that the dragon is Zelda and that the woman you just saw in a cutscene has now passed a huge amount of time as an immortal dragon in order to appear in front of Link seemingly just moments after he passed the Master Sword through the portal. Later on, once Link has gained the ability to land atop the light dragon in the sky above Hyrule, the Urhu returns, playing not that familiar Urhu dragon theme, but a beautiful and heartbreakingly incomplete rendition of Zelda's theme. Zelda's theme is only three notes, but here the Urhu only plays the first two. This dragon is Zelda, but she's lost her memories and in the process lost herself. This incomplete rendition evokes that like a musician trying and failing to remember Zelda's theme before transitioning into the dragon theme. That's some musical storytelling right there, man. The thing that's inspired Zelda to make this great sacrifice is the Master Sword itself, which was broken in the first encounter with Ganondorf and must be reforged in order to be strong enough to fight him back in Link's present. So when Zelda receives the Master Sword through the time portal... Something interesting happens. The sword itself seems to talk to her, and it speaks with a familiar voice and is accompanied by a familiar theme. How is the master sword? You're telling me that Link is safe? You traveled through time to find me and recover your strength. It'd be easy to miss, but this is one of my favorite musical easter eggs in the entire game. As Zelda picks up the Master Sword, we hear its voice, the voice of Fee from Skyward Sword, the construct who, at the end of that game, sacrificed herself to become the Master Sword. And the moment I heard that suspended fourth on the piano, I knew what music I was about to hear. Fee's theme, one of my favorite pieces of music from all of The Legend of Zelda. There are a lot of beautiful melodies in The Legend of Zelda, but this one, to me, it might be the most beautiful.
I don't know, it messes me up. I don't even like Skyward Sword that much. I just love that piece of music. I could listen to it forever. And so when it played as the Master Sword spoke to Zelda, I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. You're telling me that Link is safe? Do you hear the theme? It's fragmented. To find me and recover your strength. Stretched out over this whole sequence. Until it ends with the final note providing the button on the scene. Perfect. Hundreds of years later, Link does find Zelda and he retrieves the repaired Master Sword in a cathartic and kind of hilarious moment. So in the first Zelda episode, I talked about the item get sound, a legendary reward jingle that plays in some form in most Zelda games whenever you get a particularly good item. It sounds like this. So when Link, after hundreds of years, at long last dislodges the Master Sword from Zelda's dragon hair, well, it plays the most dramatic rendition of the item get jingle I have ever heard. <laughs> Listener, I fell out of my chair. Tears of the Kingdom is less stingy with Link's theme as well, or at least a little less stingy with it than Breath of the Wild was. It turns up diegetically, of course, with Link humming it as he cooks, and with the stable trotters quoting it in their finished piece, but it also makes an appearance at crucial story junctures. One of my favorites takes place in the past, as the King of Hyrule promises Ganondorf that someone named Link, someone he's never met, will return in the future to defeat him. You're wrong. Years from now, someone will appear with the sword that seals the darkness. A swordsman with the power to defeat you, Link. Remember this name. And in the game's grand finale, as Link rides atop Zelda to battle Ganondorf in the darkened skies above Hyrule, each of those themes makes an appearance. As Zelda the Dragon somehow remembers Link and flies to his aid, Zelda's theme finally completes and connects with the Tears of the Kingdom theme. Finally remembered that third note. Her theme continues to take the four as she and Link fly into battle. Possibly the most martial version of Zelda's theme. And then comes the moment the entire game has been building toward. With Ganondorf defeated, Link and the Light Dragon float suspended in the air. The spirits of the ancient king and queen appear, and with one last pair of hand claps, they lend their power to Link to transform Zelda back to her original form. As Link sees her again, after all this struggle and hardship, what should play but a classic piano rendition 
of Zelda's lullaby. They're not quite done yet, however. They're still high up in the sky, so as the pair begin to plummet toward the earth, Link, with an assist from the player, dives to finally catch her so long after he let her fall. And as he does so, the music, well, it begins with a dramatic final performance of the Tears of the Kingdom theme. And as he draws closer, Zelda's theme, complete with hand claps, layers on top. The two themes intertwine as Link reaches closer and closer, before finally, in the last moments, summoning his own musical theme. And here, at long last, their hands finally connect. Do you see what I'm saying now about the hand claps? It's all about the hand claps, man. It's such a moment, I don't even know what else there is to say about it. If you've played it, you know what I'm talking about. Three musical themes interlocking, a narrative building to a single hand-clapping heroic moment, a hundred hours in the making. Incredible. I've talked in the past about how The Legend of Zelda feels like home to me, and that'll always be true. But Tears of the Kingdom felt like something else, too. It was such a musical adventure for me, as through Zelda I left for a time and place far away. And that was the magic of this game, the journey that it took me on through time and space. And when, at long last, Zelda was finally home, I was home again, too. I have so much to tell you. So much happened. Oh, Link. I'm home. And that'll do it for my analysis of the music of The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. I had such a good time making this episode, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And to all of you who support this show financially, extra special thank you to all of you. Listener support, your support is really the thing that lets me keep the lights on here at Strong Songs HQ. It lets me keep this whole thing going. So your support really is crucial, and I never take it for granted. If you want to support this show, which you should do, you should support Strong Songs. If you want to do that, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash strong songs. And if you do that, you will get early access to new episodes of the show, among other things, which is pretty fun. You can also make a one-time donation at the link in the show notes. 
Of course, down in the show notes, you can also find links to the Strong Song store, social media, and here in season five, I've been soliciting listener outro solos. And just as a reminder, if you want to record an outro solo of your own, possibly to be featured on a future episode, you can find a link to a play along and a chart down in the show notes. This time around, we're featuring listener Rob Rideout, who laid down some pretty shredding guitar playing. So stick around for Rob, and I'll see you in two weeks for more Strong Songs. Mm-hmm.